Hello and welcome to the She Reads Truth Podcast, where we open our Bibles and talk about the beauty, goodness, and truth we find there. I'm your host, Rachel Myers. And I'm your other host, Amanda Bible Williams. And today we're joined by our friend, Scott Saul. Scott is a local pastor here in Nashville. He's actually Rachel's pastor. He is. And he is just a dear friend of ours and someone whose input we really value and trust, which is great because this section of Ecclesiastes talks a lot about a topic that can be tough to navigate. It talks a lot about money. And that's a sensitive topic at any time, but especially now as we and so many that we know are navigating new financial territory and circumstances. So we do in this episode what we always do, which is we go to scripture and see what it has to say. So we invite you to join us as we wrestle with this difficult topic together. Let's go. We had a text thread this morning giving instructions for our day of recording and our, our you, social distance, our recording. social distance recording. You said that this is your favorite book of the Bible. Yes. Question mark. <laughs> <laughs> Not even like this is among my favorite. Uh, I love the Psalms and Ecclesiastes. No, he said it with resolve. The favorite. Yes. Yes. With conviction, Ecclesiastes has become my favorite book of the Bible. I'm an Enneagram four for your listeners who are into the Enneagram. That will explain a lot. Okay. That does help. Uh, we like to brood. We notice the darker side of things more quickly than others. And that doesn't mean that we are despairing people, us fours. It just means we notice and we value honesty and authenticity about how difficult life really is. And Ecclesiastes is just boldly honest, almost embarrassingly honest about how hard Mm -hmm. being human can be in a fallen world, uh, even success, even opulence. He doesn't just have a pool. He has pools. He doesn't right. just have a garden. He has gardens. Uh, he has a plurality of everything and everything that people chase after. He's got it to the uttermost and lacks satisfaction in it. And then, of course, his conclusion is fear God and keep his commandments. That's the only answer that I've found in life that works. And, you know, coming from one of the wealthiest people who ever lived, that's something else. I'm also struck too that as far as I can tell, Ecclesiastes is the only book of the Bible that was written by somebody who was succeeding by the world's measures of success. You look at the books of Moses, you look at the Psalms, you look at you know, all the wisdom books, you look at the entire New Testament, the whole Bible, except for Ecclesiastes, is written by somebody who's either under oppression, in exile, in prison, or facing the very real possibility of death by persecution. Every other book of the Bible, including Philippians, the letter of joy, is written (laughs) by a man who is in jail uh, as he writes it. And that's where he says, rejoice in the Lord always. Meanwhile, you've got the writer of Ecclesiastes living on top of the world, crushing it, Mm -hmm. and he can't find joy anywhere. And so I love the honesty about it. It says maybe more honestly and boldly than any other book ever written in the history of the world how much we need what this world can offer, but what Christ can. Yeah. Yeah. And we've said it last week. We'll say it again this week. The timing just in God's providence that we are reading this book right now as a community is just stunning to me. 
that gift because while Ecclesiastes is not my favorite book of the Bible, I have a really hard time What's choosing wrong with favorites. You, Amanda? She's I know. <laughs> and Amanda's an Enneagram nine and will choose a favorite nothing. I refuse to choose. I am indecisive and they're all great. I was about to say I'm proud of it. I'm not really proud of it. But so Ecclesiastes is not my favorite book of the Bible. However, I don't think that I've ever been as thankful for it as I am right now Mm -hmm. because of all of those things you just said. Like this is, you know, there's so much that we're all collectively as a society experiencing for the first time, but it's in scripture. Like this feeling that we're all feeling of like, wait, was this life that we were living Mm -hmm. empty? Because the world's still turning and we're doing all the things that we thought you know, the world will stop turning if I don't get my list done today or if I don't do this or that or the other. And, oh, no, actually it does. And some of these things aren't as full of meaning as we'd hoped. And yet scripture addresses this. We've all been sort of forced to sit in eight weeks of retrospection, having lost the agency that we didn't know to enjoy of deciding yeah. what to do tonight, like yeah. you said. You didn't say um, while we were recording, though. You were saying, you and Patty, what do you say in the evenings? Yeah, every night. What do you want to do tonight? Why don't we just stay in? <laughs> what do you think? Every night. Sounds great. But Groundhog we've Day. all been forced to just sit and think and realize as one thing after another for many of us, our health, our work, our whatever it is, our freedom to go out in the evening or go to a concert or see the people that we love. But we've all been forced to lose the things that gave us security. And we're having our own version of this crisis of like, what does it even mean if all things are stripped away? Like if everything unravels, then what is there that we have to hold on to? And that's why I was telling you guys also before we started recording, I was telling you that I was talking with one of the girls in the shipping department as she reads truth. And she said, I'm amazed that, you know, she was saying like, it's just such a privilege during this time to be shipping truth around the world. Mm. But she specifically said, that I'm just amazed at how Bibles are flying off the shelves because more than ever, it seems, and by more than ever, I mean in our lifetime that we can understand in that context, we are as a people in search of truth, just like Solomon. Yeah. And mortality is front and center. Our our mortality Mm -hmm. is just staring us in the face. I mean, I wore a mask and gloves to get gas on the way here today. You know, things that We didn't anticipate. And I know it feels like this is all we've been talking about as a world, (laughs) but it's what these conditions expose, I think, that keeps us coming back to the subject. And that's Mm -hmm. what Ecclesiastes does, is it exposes things about us and our lives and what matters and what doesn't. Yeah. That's a really important statement you just made, Amanda, that circumstances expose what's already there. They don't create our anxiety. They don't create our dissatisfaction. They don't create our unbelief. They expose it. And, you know, even out of Satan's mouth, that truth was apparent in the book of Job, where Satan says to God, well, of course, Job worships you. He has everything that anybody could ever want, but strip him of all of it and he'll curse you to your face. And of course, Job passed the test in ways that Job's wife didn't. And, you know, one of the people I work with named Bob Bradshaw, he often says that 95% of people 
pass the test of adversity, but fail the test of prosperity, which is going to be interesting when we get into a discussion about, you know, these chapters on, you know, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money. But I think in times like this, we see not only the junk that we're made of, but also the good stuff that we're made of, that people are, for the most part, rising to the occasion in the midst of something very hard. There's this collective coming together. It happened around 9-11. It happened around the stock market crash of 2008. It happened in Nashville in 2010 when the floods happened. People come together and it doesn't just bring out and expose the worst in us. It also can expose the best in us. And, you know, the trick is when you combine the wisdom that Ecclesiastes 7 talks about with the warnings about the perils of affluence and wealth and how wealth and affluence can trick you into thinking you're prospering when maybe you're not. In the truest sense of the word, you know, it's really those times of prosperity that make it harder to see reality, the reality about ourselves, the reality about God, about community. Whereas I think in times of trial and suffering, we actually see reality better because it strips us of everything except what's real. It's clarifying. Um, yeah. And Ecclesiastes, as well as the Psalms, gives language to the things that we feel. And that old you know, phrase, misery loves company, right? Like we love the company of Ecclesiastes. We love the company of David when he praises emotion about what it feels to be betrayed or opposed, you know, if we're going through that kind of season you know, the scriptures validate, you know, our humanity in that way. Yeah. So this week we have two of the five days on have to do specifically with wealth. Like that's the, the titles are the loneliness of wealth and then the tragedy of wealth. And we're going to, rather than talking in terms of days, we're going to look at that in Ecclesiastes chapter four. And then again, in Ecclesiastes chapter six, I want to go straight there. I mean, I know that we are in many ways right now, but let's open up our Bibles and actually read some of what Solomon has to say about the tragedy of wealth, which is the kind of title you just don't want to read because it's uncomfortable. Yeah, I have in the margin of we're in Ecclesiastes 4, that passage starting at verse 4, I just wrote, oof. Like, this <laughs> is, it hurts because it's, where am I so prone to find security? Well, in having what I need and knowing that my kids have what they need. And, you know, it's, yeah, it's tough. I can't wait to hear what Scott has to say. Where should we start? I actually want to start. Let's read some of this. Scott, will you read for us from chapter four, starting in verse four, Scott? So the heading is the loneliness of wealth. And starting in verse four, it says, I saw that all labor and all skillful work is due to one person's jealousy of another. This too is futile and a pursuit of the wind. The fool folds his arms and consumes his own flesh. Better one handful with rest than two handfuls with effort and a pursuit of the wind. Again, I saw futility under the sun. There's a person without a companion, without even a son or brother. And though there is no end to all his struggles, his eyes are still not content with riches. Who am I struggling for, he asks, and depriving myself of good things. This too is futile and a miserable task. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their efforts. For if either falls, his companion can lift him up. But pity the one who falls without another to lift him up. 
Also, if two lie down together, they can keep warm, but how can one person alone keep warm? And if someone overpowers one person, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not easily broken. Better is a poor but wise youth than an old but foolish king who no longer pays attention to warnings. For he came from prison to be king, even though he was born poor in his kingdom. I saw all the living who move about under the sun follow a second youth who succeeds him. There is no limit to all the people who are before them, yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. This too is futile and a pursuit of the wind. That line, pursuit of the wind again, over and over and over. And just how when we are pursuing wealth, of course it's lonely because it's an every man, every woman for him or herself. And, you know, we want this to be independently wealthy or whatever that looks like. Like we want to not have to rely on others so desperately. And yet when that happens, when you achieve that, then the others aren't there. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And this, I think it's this day where we have Acts 2, isn't it? Yeah. If you flip the page in the study book, we have one of the supplemental passages is Acts 2, 42 through 47. And the title for that, the subtitle for that section is A Generous and Growing Church. And it is just almost the exact opposite of that loneliness of wealth, that all believers were together, held everything in common, that they ate together, they praised together, they worshiped together. And that's not the image that Solomon is painting for us. Even in 45, where it says they sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. Mm. There wasn't a loneliness there. Solomon describes wealth as the loneliness of wealth. But here we see in the generosity of the church, that cool contrast of Mm -hmm. there is not loneliness, there's community in giving Mm -hmm. and giving away. That's cool. Yeah. And I like that passage, you know, that I feel like we often will quote in a positive light that two are better than one and cord of three strands is not easily broken. Yes, but it's being described in like the absence of that, right? Like that you, sure, you can fend for yourself. You've amassed all of this, but to what end? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, We don't have the benefit of community. I want you to help us unpack that a little bit, Scott. We help us understand that passage a little bit. So the juxtaposition (laughs) between relationship and the chasing of wealth, yeah, the two can't go together. Yeah, you can't really have a vibrant relationship with God if you're chasing wealth. You can have wealth and love God, but you can't love wealth and love God. Yeah, right. You know, we've got great examples of that. Job, Mm -hmm. the most righteous person in the land, was a very wealthy person, but his wealth didn't have him around the neck. Abraham is another example, the father of the faithful. Mm -hmm. He was quite wealthy. Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, you know, we have every reason to believe Nicodemus came around and was converted to the faith because there he was, you know, helping to purchase and provide the tomb for Jesus. But then you've got the rich young ruler who, you know, is given this invitation by Jesus to come experience a wealth that he's never known, the wealth of relationship with Christ, which of course catapults you into relationship with the body of Christ and the family of God and all the wonderful metaphors around that. But because his money had him, he didn't have money, his money had him. You know, he chose money over the life that Christ was offering him. And it says that he walks away sad. And Jesus looks at him and loves him, but he walks away sad because he's walking away from love and the pursuit of money. And 
you know, you look at uh, even Jesus's promises around provision and care. And he says, you know, we're, we're hearing birds right now singing. I love the spring. I love how nature just completely ignores the COVID, you know, situation and <laughs> does it. its thing. Right. And so the birds are singing. And every time I hear birds singing, I remember the promise Jesus made of consider the birds of the air. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I take such good care of them. They're so they're well fed, you know, consider the lilies of the field. I dress them, you know, with more splendor than the wealthy Solomon had. And how much more do I care for you? And there's just this relational pursuit that God makes toward us around the subject of provision. And he's not saying, you know, quit your job and just read your Bible all day. He's not, you know, saying that, but he is saying, you know, things need to be put in perspective. Our loves need to be rightly ordered. And, you know, if we're in the category of, you know, the rich fool or the category of the rich young ruler, if money has us more than we have money, you know, that's where Jesus comes in and says, you really need to let this go. You, you really need open hands so that I can give you something richer and fuller. And, and this picture in Acts chapter two is beautiful. It's just such a wonderful, comprehensive description of life and community that God has created for his people and that their hearts and hands and pocketbooks are open not only toward one another, but toward their communities and the cities around them. And there are flourishing people who promote flourishing instead of sort of being the Ebenezer Scrooge types. And, you know, you look at Scrooge, he's just the picture of an isolated person. He's got a lot of money, but he doesn't have friends. And who wants that? And the difference here also, we can talk about it in the context. I like actually the language that you have of whether you have money or money has you. Hmm. I like that. And I think another way to look at it is deciding who your provider is. Mm -hmm. Am I my own provider or have I only ever had one provider? Mm -hmm. And when you look at, you know, in this description of the loneliness of wealth, there is this loneliness of being, of striving to be the provider. And then you get the picture in Acts of acknowledging that they've only had one provider. It was Mm -hmm. always God and God's church. And so living in that and flourishing, that's where there isn't loneliness because there is knowing that your provider isn't going anywhere for one thing. And your provider also owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Yeah. I mean, if you think about what we're asking money to do for us, if we give our hearts to money, we're asking money to treat us like only a family does. We want money to give us our security. I mean, think about the vocabulary that we've adopted around money. We put our money in a safe. Our stocks and bonds we refer to as securities. We say that, you know, however you know much financial value somebody has is their net worth. Okay, so we're looking for safety, security, and worth. These are things that you find at home. Yeah. These are the things that you find in the people who are going to be there when your career is over, in the people who are going to be there when you're suffering, when you're down and out, when you're needy, when you're dying. That's where you're going to really find those things. And what money does, the way that I described money in my sermon, actually last Sunday was on this subject, was that loving money is like being in a constant one-way hug. I mean, have you ever have you ever tried to hug somebody and they didn't hug you back? And you're just, you're like, what do I do now? Like my arms around this person and they're not hugging me back. And it's, it's such an incredibly lonely feeling. Money leaves us lonely for money because it abandons us. You know, how's your retirement account doing? You know, how's everybody's 401k doing these days, for example? 
But if it doesn't abandon us in this lifetime, it's going to abandon us at death. You know, Jeff Bezos is going to leave the world with the same amount of money as a poor widow in Calcutta. Uh, they're going to leave with the same amount of money. You know, like Job said, naked I came, naked I will depart. But it also abandons us when we have it. You know, it doesn't deliver on its promises to bring happiness. Yeah. And I, I think Ecclesiastes is a case in point on that. Yeah, it's an unreciprocated love. Yeah, but yeah. family, like a healthy functioning family is what we're asking money to be for us. Right. And many people, we ended up abandoning those people in the pursuit of money in some way, shape or form. And there's such a tragic irony to it as well. I want to read part of the parable of the rich fool that's in this same day's reading. It's from Luke 12. And I'm just going to start with the beginning of the parable in 16. Then he, Jesus, told them a parable. A rich man's land was very productive. He thought to himself, what should I do since I don't have anywhere to store my crops? I will do this, he said. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones and store all my grain and my goods there. Then I'll say to myself, you have many goods stored up for many years. Take it easy. Eat, drink, and enjoy yourself. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life is demanded of you. And all the things you've prepared, whose will they be? That's how it is with the one who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And that phrase, rich toward God, really resonated. And I'd I'd love for us to just talk for a minute, and I'd love to hear what you guys think that means. Like, what does that mean to be rich toward God? I'm just flipping through my, I have my ESV on my lap right now, and I'm so curious what that translation is. is. Yeah. Yeah. And like, how is that difference? Because we're talking about circumstance. I mean, to have or not have money is a circumstance mm-hmm. that reveals deeper truth than the fact of a bank account balance, right? Yeah. Or how much grain we have stored in a barn. Yeah, I've just arrived at it in ESV and it is the same, unchanged, rich okay. towards God. Yeah. It's interesting if we go to the original Greek of that I'm not showing off. I just happened to have preached on this passage yeah. recently, and so it's fresh in the memory. I'm not a Greek scholar, but because of recent memory and preaching that passage. I'm glad I heard your sermon on I, Sunday, and I thought, oh, okay. we're going to talk about yeah. this this week. So I, yeah, it's kind of how convenient, yeah. right? But I, I recall that the rich fool says to his own soul, you know, the Greek word is suke or psyche. He sort of psychologizes himself. He's his own self-appointed psychologist. And he says to his own psyche, to his own soul, you have all this wealth. Feel good about that. Okay. And it, you know, this very day, your life is required of you. It's like that Morissette song, ironic, where she says, (laughs) you know, you won the lottery and then you died the next day. And that's, that's the tragic story of this guy. But the truth is that even if you don't die the next day, you're kind of a walking dead in a walking dead sort of situation if you're in that one-way hug with, with yeah. money, right? And so either way you lose. If You can't take it with you, and you can't truly live if money is the supreme love of your life. It's a trap. It's a trap. And yet it's a wonderful resource all at the same time. You know, that's what an idol is. It's a good thing that's turned into an ultimate thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's interesting how there are things, I remember just recently talking to Oliver. I talk about Oliver a lot. He's my guy. I love him. He's my 13-year-old son. But we were reading about things that were explicit in the Bible, Mm -hmm. things that were clear. Mm -hmm. And I was talking to him about 
you know, there are things that you wonder about and you can't know for sure. Mm -hmm. And we'll know someday in glory, if that even matters at Mm -hmm. that point. But there are things, son, that are explicit in scripture. Mm -hmm. And those things are very important for us to pay attention to. Mm -hmm. So we were talking about those things that we were reading in the book of Mark that day. But again, I'm reminded here, my goodness, is scripture explicit Mm -hmm. about wealth? And as we flip through this week and look at all of the supplementary passages, there is just no shortage of scenarios where not even just like you'll see Paul talking about it, but like where Jesus talks about wealth and he tells in parables, he tells it just in Mm -hmm. preaching. But I think that it's really important for us to pay attention to this. And I think it's important for us to know it and not just know it, but to do it. He talks more about money than he talks about love or heaven. Mm. Yeah. So I think he's trying to get our attention. <laughs> I think so. And even though, you know, Rachel, you already pointed out that two of our day titles this week have the word wealth in the title, but even in the Tuesday reading, which is entitled Caution in God's Presence, you know, it talks about fearing God, but then there it is, verse eight, the realities of wealth. Mm-hmm. And I'm actually going to read part of this because I I think it's so, it's what you just said. It's so clear. So verse eight, if you see oppression of the poor and perversion of justice and righteousness in the province, don't be astonished at the situation because one official protects another official and higher officials protect them. The profit from the land is taken by all. The king is served by the field. The one who loves silver is never satisfied with silver. The one who loves wealth is never satisfied with income. This too is futile. And it reminds me that that phrase, like, don't be astonished that this is happening, that people are being exploited, that those who have get more and those who don't have are taken advantage of. I'm paraphrasing, obviously, but it reminds me of in this world, you will have trouble. Like, don't be deceived. Mm -hmm. And even as the church, you know, in the church, we will have trouble because we struggle. I mean, mm-hmm. the topic of money, like even in the church, we struggle with yeah. this. And the scripture says, what good will it do for a man to gain the whole world, but forfeit his soul? And then it goes into, in the study book, we go into Luke 12, which yeah. is what you were just talking about. Like nature is not, not bothered. <laughs> in fact, nature is flourishing in some ways. We're mm-hmm. all staying home. Mm-hmm. We're not driving our cars. We're not polluting the air like we normally yeah. do. You know, those kind yeah. of things. And Except um, the honeybees that are getting eaten by the murder the wasp murder. or whatever that, I mean, come that on. new bug is I'm gonna, called. I'm going to admit that I Who named have, that? I have decided to stay blissfully ignorant about yeah. that topic. I yeah. haven't looked it up, but I know the term. Well, they're murdering bees. They're not. They're not murdering people. Okay, so that's much as actually. They're so this bees. is where ignorance is bliss, but also ignorance is stupidity. Because I <laughs> genuinely thought that these murder hornets were murdering people. I just assumed it's 2020. If they're murdering something, it's I think humans. you've got to get stung people. by a hive of them. Okay, to, or be allergic. Or be highly allergic. Yes. Okay. Yeah, but well, they, I mean, they they no they ruthlessly relief. destroy honeybee colonies. And that is hard. Yeah, yeah. I am relieved that it's not humans, yeah. but I am also yeah. truly yeah. <laughs> sorry to the honeybees. Yeah. So as we were saying, <laughs> this passage that's like, consider the ravens, consider how the wildflowers yeah. grow and, you know, and talks about not to strive and not to be anxious. And then this passage that we know and love that starts <laughs> in 31, Luke 12, 31, but seek his kingdom 
and those things will be provided for you. Don't be afraid, little flock, Mm -hmm. because your Father delights to give you the kingdom. Mm -hmm. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Make money bags for yourselves that won't grow old. Inexhaustible treasure in heaven where no thief comes near and no moth destroys and no murder Mm -hmm. wasps kill the honeybees. (laughs) Also, Amanda, in Romans 11 on day 12, it also talks about just this contrast between wealth which is like the worldly wealth between like the riches of the kingdom. And Paul writes in verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and of the knowledge of God. Mm. How unsearchable his judgments and untraceable his ways. You think the stock market is confusing. You think that you need to understand the Tao. I do not understand the Tao. But this, how unsearchable his judgments and untraceable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? And who has ever given to God that he should be repaid? This is the wealth to be seeking. This is the wealth to give our lives to. Hey friends, we're interrupting this conversation with Scott to remind you that we are just weeks away from the start of our summer reading plan, Women and Men in the Word, New Testament. This summer we'll be taking a look at real people from the Bible who were radically changed when they encountered Jesus. And the good news is we, as women in the Word of God, have the same direct access to Jesus through Scripture. And as we encounter Him, our lives will never be the same. You've got a week left to order the study book and time to read with us this summer, and we promise you won't want to miss it. During the summer podcast series, we'll have conversations with some of our favorite friends like Joe Saxton, Ruth Simons, Jada Edwards, and so many more. This is going to be good, y'all. And you know we love our podcast listeners. So if you don't have your book yet, take 25% off of anything in our Women and Men in the Word New Testament collection with code WORD25. That's WORD25 for 25% off our summer reading plan. All right, back to the show. And while we may not know the mind of the Lord in all of its vastness and fullness, right? Because if everything were written about Christ, the whole world couldn't contain it. Right. But we know something about the mind of God. Mm -hmm. And the mind of God is not concerned about the Dow Jones. It's not concerned about COVID-19 even. He knows where this is going. He's the author of history. He's got access to all the information. He created the information. Mm-hmm. And it turns out well. Yeah. And, you know, in the meantime, you know, when he says consider the lilies and consider the birds, he's zeroing in on two things that we depend on money for. The lilies are beautiful, right? And we want to be beautiful. I've given up in terms of my hair. Uh, (laughs) I can't grow it anymore, but I want to look good. And if I spend money, oftentimes, you know, what factors in the equation is what will help me look good. Mm -hmm. And I want to feel safe. And that's where the teaching about the birds come in. I provide for them. Consider them. Look at them. Pay close attention to them. I provide for them. And so... You know, another focus in here in Luke 12 is Jesus' teaching on greed. And he says that greed can manifest in a couple of ways. Through spending sickness, where we're spending, spending, spending in order to feel beautiful. And then in hoarding sickness, which is what the rich fool has, where we want to feel safe. We want to feel protected and we want money to be our protector. We want money to be our provider. And God is saying, I'm the source of 
all of these things, and I can give you a beauty so much greater, and I've already given you a beauty so much greater than what wealth can buy you, and I've given you a safety and a protection so much greater than money can. Money is not going to be able to buy you away from the thing that's coming for all of you, death. You're all going to die. And I've even purchased what's on the other side of that, where there's a riches and a glory awaiting you in this you know, everlasting chapter, which is the last chapter, it's the everlasting one, that even if things become a train wreck, even if you happen to be one of those people who's in the 50% of the world that lives on less than $2.50 a day. Think about that. My iPhone supports an entire year's provision for one person who's in the bottom 50% of, of wage earners in the world, the, what it costs for me to have an iPhone. And yet you see these people, you know, Johnny Erickson Tata tells this story about how she's in, in Ghana at a church and Ghana is one of the most impoverished, materially impoverished places in the world. And this woman gets up and welcomes the Americans, you know, who are there for visit. And with so much joy, she says, welcome our American friends to Ghana, where we have joy because we need Jesus more. And, you know, this is part of the, you know, people who are in that 50% that live with so much less. And it's almost as if there's an inverse relationship between wealth and joy, where wealth tends to go with vanity mm-hmm. and vapor and lack of wealth can sometimes be a contributor to joy if you're anchored into Christ. It can be despairing if you're mm-hmm. not, but if you're anchored into Christ, there's something there that yeah. is unexplainable. You know, to, to talk about the unsearchable mind of God. I'm sorry, I'm going on and on and on, but oh, um, it. it's amazing to it think about. makes me think of how much of our behavior lifestyle, society, all the things, is driven by fear. And that's a lot of what I hear in Solomon's words is like we're trying to, because we're afraid of lack, and so we're trying to find security in amassing wealth and things and possessions. Maybe we're afraid of failure, and so we're work, 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 you know, effort, Mm -hmm. effort, striving, striving, afraid of not being valuable or worthy. And so Mm -hmm. we... You know, just so much, yeah, and so much of the chasing after the wind feels like the thing that we're running from are all of those things that we're afraid of. And so I love how Ecclesiastes, you know, the end of the matter is this, fear God. Mm-hmm. Like, don't fear those things. Don't Seek fear. Seek first the kingdom, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Seek first the kingdom. Mm-hmm. Don't worry about, you know, what you're going to wear or where you're going to get your next meal. But it's hard not to worry about those things. Save for the, we're not for the truth of the gospel, where it just, everything is just turned upside down. And those things that the world fears and is in awe of, those are replaced by one who is worthy of that awe and that reverence and that worship. I stumbled across in preparing for this, I did kind of like a deep dive in a sermon series of a church I used to go to years ago. And I so appreciate when you pastors archive your sermons. That's a blessing Mm -hmm. because we can, you know, kind of go back in time and remember things we've learned. But there was a Warren Wearsby quote from the book on being a servant of God. But he says, God's goal for our lives is not money, but maturity, not happiness, but holiness, not getting, but giving. And it's just that I feel like that's the so much of the perspective shift in Ecclesiastes is that 
you know, when I read Luke 12, you know, I think I don't have to be afraid. I can be generous. Mm -hmm. Don't be afraid. Be generous. Mm -hmm. Don't fear lack. Fear God. You know, Mm -hmm. God is my shepherd. I have everything I need. Mm -hmm. You know, it's interesting. We were talking about, I mean, you can't not talk right now about having been locked up and having locked up is probably not the right word, but, (laughs) but we've been closed in our homes and we've been forced to do this thing that Mm -hmm. Solomon did. And there is a temptation to think of this as a very hard thing. I mean, it is, but to think that it is the worst thing that could happen, Mm -hmm. that everything would be stripped away. And I was reading earlier today in chapter seven, verse 10, it says, and this is his like wise sayings section. But one of the things that Solomon says is don't say, why were the former days better than these? Since it is not wise for you to ask this. And I had a moment to sit with that. And I thought, how many times in the last eight weeks have I said, boy, we don't usually at She Reads Truth wish for 2019 back because that was just a really tough year for the Williams family. Mm-hmm. And so we we usually skip backwards to 2018, but the number of times that we've said like, wouldn't be mad if it was 2018 again, you know, like, why does it have to be like, isn't, weren't the earlier days better? Mm -hmm. This is hard. The good uh, old days. The good old days. Mm -hmm. And so to sit in that and to think about, okay, rather than wishing for something, a former day, and instead asking, what do we have today? Mm -hmm. And what are we being forced to sit in and think Mm -hmm. about and look back on? And I said last week, I'm going to miss this. Yeah, it's hard and it makes us laugh until we cry sometimes or cry until we laugh. And we say things like, let's stay in today because Mm -hmm. it just gives us some sense of agency where we feel we have none. But also, these are good days. And that's hard to say. And I say that from a warm home. Mm -hmm. But I want to pay attention to the charge Mm -hmm. to not wish for the old days or the days to come, but to sit in the day that was given to me. And the day that is given to me today is a day that is complete with a lot of limitations Mm -hmm. that I did not welcome. But it is the day the Lord has made and we're called to rejoice and be glad in it. So I want to sit in today. I want to ask like, what good thing, Lord, what is good about the limitations that you've given me today that are making me aware Mm -hmm. of all the limitations that I have and I have only ever had one provider. Mm -hmm. And when we talk about the word agency, that any decision that I have, any opportunity I get, everything I have is from the Lord. Yeah. As you're using the word agency, Rachel, I'm thinking about this quote from Pascal that relates to what we were talking about a, a few minutes ago about how the rest of creation is just, sort of oblivious to what the human race is going through right now, Mm -hmm. which is tragically ironic because human beings are the crown of creation. Yeah. And as Romans eight says, um, you know, when Jesus returns again and he makes all things new, you know, the glorious freedom of the children of God will be first and then the rest of creation will follow. Like we were created for creation to be under our feet Mm -hmm. and you know adam and eve their first you know charge was to name the animals and to name the plants and to tend the garden and to exercise agency over everything until the fall happened and now 
now it feels like we're under the foot of creation, out of its control. You know, not only COVID-19, but tornadoes that hit Nashville, for example, hurricanes that hit the coasts and, you know, death and sorrow everywhere. I think a season, you know, to your point of not wasting these days is to, I think one of the things that I worry about the most for my own heart is because I'm, the anxiety gremlin is after me these days, for sure. It's very anxiety inducing to preach to an empty sanctuary Mm -hmm. while looking at a camera every Sunday and wondering like, (laughs) what's on the other side of this whole thing. You know what I mean? And I think everybody's got a version of that, right? Of uncertainty and anxiety and unrest and people losing jobs, unemployment is skyrocketing and so on. But what I'm afraid of that my own heart will do after the sort of the pressure to pray, the pressure to depend, the pressure to lean on Christ And then if once the circumstantial pressure lifts, assuming that it will, you know, that my heart will go back to, you know, finding satisfaction in things that won't last. And if anything, a season like this has shown me how easy I can find satisfaction in things that won't last. Yeah. If that makes any sense. Yes. Verse 14 of chapter seven, it answers us or it agrees with us, or maybe we should say we agree with it. But it says, in the day of prosperity, be joyful. But in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other. Hmm. Interesting. That's the same word Jesus uses when he says, consider the lilies, consider. Consider. When he says, consider the lilies, he says, think about Solomon. Mm-hmm. Who wrote here? You said full con- circle. Consider full circle. means pay attention. And then later in that same chapter in 21, don't pay attention to everything people say. Mm. <laughs> or you may hear your servant cursing mm. you, for in your heart you know that many times you yourself have cursed others. Mm. Like, just the whole book is just kind of rife with like, pay attention to this. Don't pay so much attention to this. Yeah. Or, you know, posture your heart like this. Don't posture mm. it like this. And um, it really is that dichotomy of like the life under the sun and life in the kingdom. The life under the sun is what the book is not doing is ignoring or kind of explaining away life under the sun. It's doing the opposite of what you said at the beginning of this episode, the beginning of this conversation was that it's honest and it's Mm -hmm. calling it what it is, Mm -hmm. but God and the gospel and Jesus, it just really... I almost feel like Ecclesiastes is like giving me like a shove Mm. to like, now go read the Gospels Mm -hmm. (laughs) and be reminded of, you know, all the times that Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like this. Yeah. And it makes me want to, okay, I, I feel like this is like a corrective comfort of like, this is not how we are to look and behave. This is not how we are to live, to live as the world lives, but now run to Jesus Mm. and find life, real life Mm -hmm. that goes beyond wealth. Mm -hmm. So much, you know, a different kind of discover a different kind of wealth, like Mm -hmm. riches toward God. Mm -hmm. Okay. There's one more thing I want to talk about before I know we're running out of time, but we have this image in Ecclesiastes that we've talked about even today, multiple times, the chasing after the wind. Mm -hmm. And I just, and clearly that's a lot of what we do as a society. And in doing that, we become very, very blind to the humanity of those 
the chase beside us, you know, that we're all mm-hmm. running after our thing. We're very individualistic. Mm-hmm. We're very mm-hmm. much trying to amass whatever it is that we're trying to amass, whether it be wealth, you know, comfort, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And I think, Scott, of your book, you have a new book coming out, right? It's called A Gentle Answer. Mm-hmm. Is that right? What's the yes. subtitle? Uh, our Secret Weapon in an Age of Us Against Them. That's right. Because one of the things I loved most about your subtitle is that you put secret weapon in in air quotes for us. That's right. That was very intentional. I loved it. I knew it was, and I loved it. But the age of us against them, that's very much what this feels like. And Mm -hmm. it feels like that's kind of what's been called to a halt a little bit, is that I, we've talked on this podcast even about how we feel kind of a kinship to those around us in a way that's unique to what we've experienced previously, that we all have a common enemy right now Mm -hmm. in the virus, right? Mm -hmm. But so much of that us against them culture, I think I can hear echoes of that in Solomon's writing in Ecclesiastes that like, I'm chasing the wind. I'm chasing what I'm chasing without regard to those around me often. Mm -hmm. Like it's very easy to just get focused on the thing we think we have to have or a thing we think we have to accomplish. Mm -hmm. So talk to us about that because I feel like, I feel like there's a connection there with Ecclesiastes. Is there? I mean... Since Ecclesiastes is my favorite book of the Bible, there's a connection (laughs) to everything with Ecclesiastes, right? I mean, in a circuitous way, yeah, I think so, because our angst and our outrage is a function of our dissatisfaction, Yeah, right? And, And Ecclesiastes is just an expression of our dissatisfaction with things. And the thing that the writer of Ecclesiastes does is the same thing that psalmists do after they express their dissatisfaction. They run to the cure, who is Christ himself. And if if we don't have the cure to our dissatisfaction in plain view, then the win that we're going to chase after is some sort of, some version of control, some version of faux or false pseudo victory. Mm -hmm. And often that manifests in outrage. Some of your listeners who are familiar with my history or or who I am know that I worked with Tim Keller for, for several years in New York. And one of the things that his wife, Kathy says is, and this is so clever and so true, the natural religion of every human heart is self-righteousness. We're trying to build a righteousness of our own. And the writer of Ecclesiastes, the chasing after the wind is a chasing after righteousness, is a chasing after significance, is a chasing after a narrative that enables me to say I'm okay. Money, sex, power, you know, those are the three primary culprits. Everything fits under those categories in one way, form, or another. But one form of power is outrage is putting others down to feel superior. And you see this in Luke 18, 9, where Jesus describes some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous Mm -hmm. and treated others with contempt. The whole premise of the book is, it's from Proverbs 15, 1. It says, a gentle answer turns away wrath. If we want to be a solution rather than a part of the problem, gentleness has to play into the equation. Even if I'm a very prophetic person and there's something to be said for a a prophetic voice, you know, pick your subject, racism, huge problem. It it needs to be challenged. Women being exploited and abused in the workplace, huge problem for many, many, many years. 
and we go on and on. Immigrants and refugees, completely fragile, you know, exiled from their homes. It's a problem if we just let that happen, right? And so, you know, C.S. Lewis talks about how Christianity is a fighting religion. You know, we see what's wrong with the world and we go after it, right, for healing and redemption. But if that fighting impulse against the wrong in the world is not accompanied by tenderness and gentleness, if the lion is not accompanied by the lamb, we're just angry. We're just ragers. And I've never met a person who was persuaded by being scolded or by being put in their place or called out or shamed. And, right. and you know, the beauty of Jesus Christ and the beauty of a person that's or a community of people that's filled with the Spirit is that there's this ability and impulse to flex the muscles of compassion and conviction at the, the same time. And yeah, the, a great uh, the gentle answer it. is just an effort to say, hey, wait, let's, let's remember the compassion part. Let's remember the gentleness and the tenderness part and bring that into the equation as we address the wrong in the world. Otherwise, we're just going to be another corner of people shouting. Yeah. It feels really timely. I'm sure it's not the best time to release a book, strategically speaking. It's a speaking. horrible time. Yeah. <laughs> because we have other, mm-hmm. other friends who Amazon doesn't released... want to sell books right now. No, um, no. So, they... yeah, it's kind of crazy. But. So this book comes out next Tuesday, June 2nd, and I'm really excited about this. I got a peek at the table of contents this morning, mm-hmm. and it's possibly my favorite table of contents of a book I've ever seen. And I told you oh, I really wow. liked it, but I didn't say that. Here's what I like about it. And of course, this is the way that you structured it. Like there's kind of a part one and a part two, Mm -hmm. and it starts with the gentleness Jesus has for us. And then part two is how gentleness changes us. Mm -hmm. But it's important that order, Mm -hmm. that a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up a content. Mm -hmm. This is, I told you today, this is the first Bible verse I ever taught my young Oliver when he was a little guy. And not because that was like, the best verse I could think to, but it was A in the ABC Bible verses that we were memorizing. Mm-hmm. But it mm-hmm. happens to be mm-hmm. verse of the Bible that he's mm-hmm. ever memorized. And so it's been something that has mattered in our home, but not because of, it's that he we love because he first loved us. Mm-hmm. And so you start your book, Scott, with the first three chapters are he befriends the sinner in us. Mm-hmm. He reforms the Pharisee in us and he disarms the cynic in us. And once that's done, which it is done and he will continue to do, then we get to go into that second half, like how gentleness changes us. And I love this. I'm actually going to read you guys these chapter titles. I'm so excited about this book. So here is how his gentleness changes us. First, we grow thicker skin. Next, we do anger well. We receive criticism graciously. We forgive all the way. And then we bless our own betrayers. None of that happens before Jesus makes the change in us. We can't do that to other people. I'm saying I love this table of contents and I can't wait to read the contents of the table of contents. I can't wait to read the contents of the table of contents. I can't, so this comes out next Tuesday, June 2nd, y'all. Go ahead and pre-order it because who knows how long it will take for books to arrive. But if you let Amazon know that you want it, it'll start heading that way. Yeah, It is a crazy time to release a book, but I feel like we're ready for that book. We need it. Like, I want to believe that there is a softening that is taking place so that we can receive that message. That like, as we're coming out of hiding, (laughs) just kind of what it feels like, like, let's do this well. Mm -hmm. And what if it's a fresh start and we don't have to go after each other the way that we did before? And keeping the kingdom in view and keeping that lens, Mm -hmm. the one that we're looking through. Mm -hmm. I think, too, Amanda, 
and Rachel, this could be, at least in our time, in the current time, one of the greatest opportunities that people who identify as followers of Christ have for witness to the world. Because faithful witness is about being counterculture in a beautiful way. Not counterculture in an against culture sort of way, but right. a counterculture in a way that adds life and adds value and adds beauty and rest to a restless climate. And so hopefully it'll, you know, help move the needle an inch or two in some people's lives or communities. But yeah, I hope yeah, so thanks too. For, thanks for drawing attention well, to and it. Well, and even like it. it was a couple of weeks ago, Scarlett Hildebeidel was on and she was talking about praying with her grandma and she was saying like, pray with old people whenever you can mm. because mm-hmm. they're so wise and they walked with the Lord mm-hmm. for so long. Yeah. And her grandma said, you know, give us peace and joy because that is our testimony. Hmm. And that is our testimony to hmm. have a gentle answer. That is the testimony that we have. Hmm. It's what sets us apart. Yeah. So Scott... Here on the She Reads Truth podcast, yes, you know, of course, that we open our Bibles and talk about the beauty, goodness, and truth we find there. Yes. And we always like to wrap it up with just a look around and looking at the beauty, goodness, and truth that we find in our everyday lives that points us to Christ. And so, Amanda oh, yes. and Scott, what do you guys got? What's your BGT for the week? So... We talked a little bit today, actually, and last week about nature. And I've had a moment, you know, sometimes I feel like we lean toward one of the three, beauty, goodness, truth. But my evening walks, which I say my evening walks, like these have been part of my life for a long time. They have not. (laughs) But in current circumstances, it has really been a moment of pause and just sanity for me. And I usually go alone, um, take my daughter occasionally, or one of the boys, But just, it's been a place where all three of those have really collided for me. So generally, I will go in the evening right before sundown. So it's beautiful. It's very peaceful. But I'll take my AirPods. I'll listen to, lately I've been listening to a lot of Sandra McCracken, which is very like scripture saturated Mm -hmm. lyrics. And so I'll listen to music. So there's like the beauty of that art. The goodness of just being in creation, which though we've been home a lot, haven't necessarily been outside a ton. So doing that and then just being reminded, I feel like it's a moment where I stop. I just make my mind stop and I just let the spirit of Christ just minister truth to me. And in remembering what I already know to be true and what he's already taught my heart. And so, so yeah, so my walks have been, they've been nice. They're brief. But it's enough. It's good. Yeah. What about you, Scott? So I'm going to say a small handful of people in my life who are not willing to let COVID-19 dictate the storyline. So (laughs) here's an anecdote. And I'm talking about my own family. Both my daughters are seniors, one in college, one in high school. And they're both finishing high school and college without their friends, without you know, all the things that you look forward to when you finish high school and college. And, you know, for a student, it's a lot of loss and it's a lot of anticlimax, right? And so our oldest daughter, Abby, was home, you know, doing college from home. Hmm. And one night it was going to be prom night until it wasn't. And, you know, our youngest daughter is 
been dating a young guy named Sam Ellis for a couple of years and just, uh, you know, that's a real sadness for them. And so what my wife decides to do is, you know, we're not going to let this thing kill prom. And so Patty tells Ellie, our youngest daughter, to put on her prom dress because we bought the dress. Patty pulls out the dress from her prom that still fits her. <laughs> yes, uh, of course. Uh, and, yeah. you know, I get suited up. And Abby, our oldest, is the disc jockey and the surprise guest. We're going to do prom together as a family on our back porch, right? And the surprise guest is Sam. And he comes over with flowers. And Patty traveled all around town and found a boutonniere. So Ellie and so we did prom on our back porch with music and dancing and everything else. And it was small and, and it was glorious. It was just like a statement that to me felt like the way that Christ shows up in mm-hmm. the rubble and in the mess and says, this is not all there is. And like Sandra says in one of her songs, this is not okay. So I know it's not the end. And, you know, to be able to import that reality into the present in a small way, was beautiful. I've Um, seen photos of this night, probably on your Facebook page. Oh, the prom. Yeah. So joyful. (laughs) And it is the happiest. It made me so happy. Yeah. And Patty and I, of course, are dancing 12 inches apart to leave room for the Holy Spirit. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) You know, we're, we're doing all the ham it up stuff. So yeah, it was a blast, but that was all, that's all Patty. That's her imagination. Uh, That's an example of being countercultural in a beautiful way. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe so. Maybe so. Yeah. That's mine. Yeah. What do you have, Rachel? What's yours, Rachel? Well, y'all know I love art and I really miss museums right now. One of our favorite things anywhere we travel is to spend time at the museum that holds the original art. And so you have to go all over the world to see those pieces in their original form. And I remember years ago we were in New York. I think it was MoMA. And I think it was at the Museum of Modern Art. And I saw if you love art, you've had this moment where you see something and you can't look away. And it just consumes, you You just look at it, like I've never seen that before. And for me, that piece, it was The Postman by Van Gogh. I'm pretty sure it's at MoMA. And um, we'll link to it in the show notes so you guys can see it. And I loved it and I stood there forever. Mm-hmm. And it's not like a widely known painting, but the green and the blue and like you can see the brushstrokes that Van Gogh painted and it's just mm. crazy. And I miss art and I miss museums and I have have a fake of it, (laughs) obviously, hanging in my eye shot right now. And I remember Ryan gave it to me, I think for my birthday or Christmas, because he knew how much I liked that painting. I had never seen it before. I saw the first thing, and that was my first encounter with it. And when I got it from him, I wanted to be really excited, but they didn't get the colors right in the Mm. reprint. Mm. It's just not as bright. It's not as brilliant. Mm. And and I want to see the real thing. I miss the real thing. Mm -hmm. And it makes me think of Paul in 1 Corinthians where he says, now I see in a mirror dimly, Mm -hmm. and then I'm going to see face to face. And we have that hope. And so my beauty, goodness, and truth this week is that the beauty of Van Gogh's painting from centuries ago, or Mm -hmm. I don't know how long ago, makes, and then the reasonable facsimile that I have hanging in my home makes me long for the real thing. Mm -hmm. And right now I'm longing for the real thing. Mm -hmm. Not just of the painting, but I'm longing for heaven. And I think that the beauty that drives us to the truth. Yeah. yeah. You're longing for that because God said eternity in your heart. He did. Rachel. It's right there. Rachel Myers. I want it. Mm. 
Let's end with a benediction. Scott, would you read a benediction for us? I'm thinking maybe that one from Luke 12. Sure, Luke 12, 31 and 32. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be provided for you. Don't be afraid, little flock, because your father delights to give you the kingdom. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Friends, thank you for listening with us and joining us for week two of Ecclesiastes. And then we will be back again next week with week three of Ecclesiastes. And we are so looking forward to that. Scott, until next time, do you remember what we say? Keep reading your Bibles. That's right. That's right.